Good morning and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Today I want to talk about how level-based incentives or level-based modifiers might affect the play experience at the table. Um, I have been, over the last, say, year or so, I mean, regular listeners of the podcast will know that I've been indulging in a lot of old-school play, and also I have been indulging a lot of modern games as well, too, like Pathfinder 2nd Edition. I ran a lot of that the last little while, and I had a bit of a, I've had not a revelation necessarily, because I don't want to overstate uh, what this might mean, but I just have had... A lot of thoughts, I've had a feeling that there is something about the level-based bonuses that has just been affecting the play experience at or at the table. And it's not to say that it's a bad play experience, you know, or that my, the, the experience with the more modern games has been bad by any means. I just, it feels like it's been different enough from our experience with old school games. And I wanted to put my finger on why that was. Um, What follows is going to be a bit of... I'm recording this after having reached kind of a a tentative conclusion on this. So um, you'll you'll see over the course of this uh, episode that I kind of... um, Especially in the third section of this... uh, Third segment, I should say. I was really struggling with trying to figure out why I was feeling the way I did about uh, certain... Uh, approaches. Uh, so, so that's what we're going to talk about today. And then, um, yeah, hopefully this provides some uh, food for thought for your own experience with uh, with modern games, and with uh, you know, get, at least at the very least, gives you some food for thought for why you might not want to link up the non-combat components of your game uh, to the character level. So. Anyway, so that's the episode. Let's get to it. Okay, let's start off with a, a state of play. Uh, so since we last met, uh, I have had uh, two sessions of my ongoing uh, AD&D 2nd Edition campaign. And I have had the first session of our Pathfinder 2nd Edition uh, game, uh, where we we have that one set in... Innistrad in the uh, gothic horror plane from the Magic the Gathering setting. And uh, well, I was going to have the se- next session of our Modern Age campaign uh, on Sunday, but unfortunately I got uh, kind of slammed with uh, work at the day job uh, this weekend, so I needed to uh, cancel that session, and uh, I need to do some preparation for this week's uh, day job work, the things that keeps me in the uh, musing business, uh, or non-business, I suppose. Um, so, let's hear. First off, the so the uh, AD&D sessions we had... Let me think what happened here. Um, Wednesday... I know, so Saturday, I know for sure, was uh, everyone getting back to... T- not Saturday, Friday night. Friday night was everyone back in town and talking about what their uh, plans for the next, uh, I guess that's the last of these past two sessions have been back in, um, in Milbourne in their, uh, in the main city, the town, their kind of like quest hub where this is set. Uh, the last, this past week has been a lot of role playing with the, the guys checking in with people, making plans for, uh, next steps, leveling up as well too. We've had a couple of characters hit level two. That's what we did this week. We did training. 
So what I'm doing with uh, some house rules I'm using uh, for this one, I'm, I am using as recommended by the author of um, Night Below. And I guess for those who, who aren't uh, following us on the YouTube channel, uh, I am currently running the Night Below, or at least a modified version of it, on the uh, uh, Wednesday and Friday sessions uh, using AD, a house rule version of AD&D 2nd Edition. And uh, what... Um, the Night Below was written by Carl Sargent, this really prolific and excellent uh, game designer from um, the 80s and 90s who has unfortunately passed away. Um, but the, uh, the the campaign itself, like I, I'm feeling now more like I'm, I'm making it my own and I'm kind of, I, I, the, the campaign is coming together. There are some, not missteps, but there's some things that I'm, doing in this that I did not do in our Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game, which I th I'm hoping will provide more of a direct through line for the story. Because in this one, I mean, uh, Ash, the Ash game is more of a pure sandbox, whereas this one does have, it's definitely a sandbox, but there are, there's stuff going on that the characters are going to have to, you know, either deal with or deal with the consequences of it going on. And the, um, yeah, so I, I uh, have introduced... Uh, I, I decided to go with the uh, the uh, same rules as uh, uh, set out in... Or the same training that uh, Carl recommends for it. Uh, he had recommended that we make use of the optional training rules, which means that you got to spend a bunch of money and spend a bunch of time uh, training. But the rules as written are pretty crazy in terms of how much it costs to train and how long it takes to train and like it's the the time is not that much of a as not as much of a factor uh or a concern for me as what the money is but the money is pretty out of whack with what characters are actually earning in the campaign as written so even in in the game as written you'd be really hard pressed to have enough money for a group of uh even four players to uh to be able to afford the training that's necessary for them to go from first level to second level, setting aside the length of time they'd have to spend doing that. So um, I've house ruled that to reduce the the cost of uh, training a little bit, and I have also uh, reduced the time uh, that's required to being a little less uh, than before. But what I've also done is added in a component for to kind of make the um, the NPCs who are their trainers, to make them a little more, not believable, but a little more uh, part of a living world by each uh, uh, trainer has some quest that the players can complete. And I mean, by quest, I mean like task that the players can complete that will reduce the cost of their next level. Uh, so that gives them something else to consider working on. And I've specifically set it so that some of them are actually cross-purposes. So there are some tasks that are actually, like one of the trainers is intent on kind of discovering or ferreting out the secrets of another one of the trainers. And the, I mean, these are not the only trainers in the region. It's just these are the only ones they have met so far who they have convinced to uh, to train them. And uh, our, the players haven't actually ventured outside of... Uh, Millbourne yet. I mean, because there's plenty of shit to keep them occupied in uh, in this one town anyway. So it's not like, you know, they're at a loss of things to do. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so we did training, and then the heroes headed back out to uh, this goblin stronghold at Heathertop Warren. And uh, I, I mentioned it on a previous podcast, I've made some, not substantial changes, but I've made some um, additions to that whole thing, because 
the um, I, I, I wanted more to it than what was uh, what's presented in the uh, Night Below uh, campaign. And I'll probably do that as we go along to a lot of the um, the elements. Partly because I mean I just I, I want it to fit my sensibilities, and partly because it's, it's a really good opportunity to steal stuff from other products and then to incorporate them. Uh, you know, make use of stuff that I may not otherwise make use of. And I'll talk more about that one. We're a little further in the campaign, but for now, I uh, I'll leave it a little vague like that. Uh, overall, I mean, there was a really a really fun couple of sessions. I, I did enjoy the training. We got some uh, story. Uh, elements also pushed forward because one of the characters uh, had a bit of a... His trainer is actually the spirit of a long-dead uh, elf from his... Who seems to be from one of the uh, ancestor tribes that um, that make... Or the ancestor tribes that would... that You know, from which his own tribe came. And um, that trainer offered a vision as sort of the, the, the quest you know, uh, the quest thing that uh, they played the party later ner- later learned was part of a different, um, you know, a different place. And right now, I mean, if we sit down there, it seems like they they have about maybe about four or five different potential quest kind of lines to follow here. They've learned about the, there's the goblins who they're dealing with right now. They know there are orcs in this forest near the southern part of the region they're living. They know about these missing people, and they don't know whether either of those are related to that. They know there's a mystery going on in the Great Rock Dale. There's a bunch of adventurers going into this region called the Great Rock Dale as well. Uh, they know there's some mystery with dogs going on in uh, in the town, and they know that uh, there was... Um, oh, there's something going on with the uh, the other kind of noble family or, or rich family in the region, uh, the Lord the Palfreys, because they found the weaponry that the orcs were using are actually from, um, they, they seem to be from the same, you know, uh, castle blacksmith that, or at least the same line of castle blacksmiths that the uh, players are from, or the players that the uh, current Palfrey uh, family uses. I, I introduced it to that idea that the in the same way that there's like heraldic crests that uh, you know follow families down that the maker's mark uh, or the trademark I guess of the different uh, what do you call it of the different um, craftsmen they would incorporate elements of their predecessors mark to tr- try and like associate themselves with uh, or make it clear that they were trained by you know someone like that so um, yeah so there's that and they also know that um, uh, there was something that happened in another region that perhaps involved a necromancer. And who doesn't love necromancers? We've got a, a undead slayer in the party, a uh, an elven priest of Corlon Larathian, who has uh, the undead slayer kit. And yeah, and I mean that's it. Worth just quickly chatting about the the actual rules themselves. So um, with this new where we left things in that session was with our heroes all. Um, what do you call it? So all uh, getting ready to potentially scale this massive cliff to get into uh, this place called um, to into Heathertop War and find another way of getting in there. That's an 80-foot cliff, but there's lots of handholds and stuff like that, so really anyone can do it. I was going to kind of improvise rules, but I last night before bed, I decided to take a look in the uh, Player's Handbook and DMG 
And the, it's worth saying, like, the second edition Player's Handbook and DMG has so many, both of them have so many great ideas and great, you know, great consolidations of the previous edition's ideas. Like, uh, I only noticed last night that the, I can't remember if it's the Player's Handbook or the uh, DMG, but it incorporates some of the visibility stuff from the Wilderness Survival Guide. And well, those regular listeners may know that Wilderness Survival Guide is probably one of my favorite. I think Oriental Adventures nudges it out a little bit, but uh, it's easily up there with more, uh, my very favorite uh, AD&D products. And there's not the full, you know, uh, rules for the Wilderness Survival Guide, but a lot of the little things that I, I do like a lot and that I incorporate into my uh, my own games, uh, like visibility, th- those seem to be incorporated full, you know, and climbing, uh, their rules for climbing, their rules for swimming, all that stuff is now incorporated into the second edition uh, Player's Handbook. And uh, I had, so I was, the, the other game I ran was, was Pathfinder 2nd, and the group I have for that is really great. The uh, adventure, uh, I've, what I've decided to do is I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do as a, with a campaign with it, but I really didn't feel like I knew the characters well enough. And I wanted to, I knew that I wanted to do something that was, um, you know, that was a fixed length uh, of time for the, uh, for the campaign. Um, because we're, only, we're doing quarterly games with that group as we are with a lot of our other groups. And... What I landed on on uh, Friday night, like the day, the night before I was supposed to, to run the session, is I landed on um, serial. You know, I'm going to do serialized uh, adventures. I'm going to do it like it's a you know pulp uh, thing where each individual adventure is going to be a different kind of short story, as it were. So for the first one, I've, uh, the first adventure is called The Fisherman's Daughter, and it involves the heroes investigating this this strange. You know, they were there for those who haven't been listening to the previous uh, episodes. What uh, the setup for the campaign is is that the heroes are all playing members of basically an inquisitorial squad. So, like, they're like monster hunters, you know, church monster hunters who are going out and kind of, you know, ghost hunting or werewolf hunting or vampire hunting or whatever, you know. And the 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 thing that I, I, I mean, I really I enjoyed the character creation session. They got some really good characters in it. Uh, the setting is, is awesome. I love Innistrad as a setting. It reminds me a lot of the stuff I loved about oh, Ravenloft back in the day, you know, and, um, but it's got its own, you know, unique twist to it. And I kind of dig the, the five colors of magic thing with, with Magic the Gathering. So that's a lot of fun as well. And what we, um, what we did uh, this, so we set up and we started playing. And the th- thing that, that I need to get back in, I need to get back in a mindset of designing for Pathfinder Second because Pathfinder Second is it does a really great job of set pieces. And I think um, our first session involves uh, one combat, a bunch of role playing, and then one combat. And the we're we're finding our legs with the the combat system or the uh, car- the system in general. Partly because I mean the this is the I think the second time that some people are playing Pathfinder Second, uh, first time this this whole entire group is playing together, and the characters are actually fifth level characters. So there is a, a fair bit of complexity to the characters as well. It's not like these are just you know, starting off characters. There's a little more things to keep track of. So we had some, you know, there's a little bit of time spent uh, looking up powers and stuff like that. Um, but the 
the numbers on the on Pathfinder 2 are just bonkers. Like you, but even by fifth level, you're adding so much that so many of your dice results are in the 20s. So it's hard to, to kind of judge what's a good or bad roll. Uh, again, I've, I've talked about this in the podcast before. There's a way around that just by sitting, you know, writing out what um, a, a easy task, a moderate task, a, a difficult task would be. But um, it's just it's it's a very different, you know, uh, it's a very different. Uh, experience. It's not as easily intuitive as, say, you know, AD&D or, you know, uh, D&D 5th, to be honest. It's been a couple of years since I've run D&D 5th, but, I mean, I remember what it was like running it and the numbers didn't get, there wasn't that number bloat the way there is with Starfinder and Pathfinder 2nd and Pathfinder 1st, for that matter, too. So, so that was a little weird. And then the, um, the, the encounter itself was a lot of fun. Like, we had, uh, the players were uh, encountered a, a ghost, and the players also encountered an undead shark. And the undead shark was fucking awesome. It was a really good encounter. I, I, I love, you know, those who... I may not have mentioned on the podcast before, too, but I have a thing about sharks just because of... I'm sure, like, a lot of people, uh, my folks let me see Jaws when I was way too young to see Jaws. So I've had a thing about sharks for, you know, since I was a kid. So using sharks in an underwater scene is, is pretty awesome. One thing where, you know, the rules kind of get in the way of the, the common sense, which is unfortunately, the, I mean, when you have a game that is as gamified as, you know, what Pathfinder 2nd is, there's a lot of advantages to that. Like you can build some really fun tactical encounters. Um, you can have lots of fun with set pieces and stuff like that. Um, the downside is, is that they're it runs up against reality quite hard in a lot of cases. So by that, I mean, you know, like there is rules as written, players in plate mail can swim, which is just fucking ridiculous, you know? And I, uh, this this particular adventure took place on the seas, and there's just some of those times where, you know, it's, uh, I ended up uh, house ruling it, uh, and I said, like, look, if you're wearing stuff, you know, um, certain things you're, you're not going to be able to swim like you're just going to sink full style I mean, you're, you're not going to have a opportunity to try and you know, dog paddle around in 80 or 90 pounds of, of uh, you know steel armor but the um, that's I don't know that, that, that and then some other stuff that, that happened in the session with that, that ended up being very gamey and whatnot. it, it reminded me when I started re- reviewing uh, the rules the same rules for AD&D I was just reminded, like, oh, man, like, ADD does so many of these things. And I don't want to say better, but, I mean, like, I for the criticism that AD&D gets for being, you know, having a rule for everything and having it all kludged together and whatever else, you know, like, reading AD&D second, yeah, there, there are a couple of things to keep track of. Like, sometimes you want to roll high, sometimes you want to roll low, sometimes you're rolling percentile dice, sometimes you're rolling a D10. Um but I don't find that stuff terribly confusing. And the rules that I've read for climbing and for swimming, I absolutely love them uh, because your level doesn't really play a role, at least not directly in any of those things. High-level characters don't suddenly, you know, find a way to be able to climb without any difficulty in a, you know, in plate mail. You know, they don't become these superheroes uh, where they're doing physical tasks that they should not be able to do. And similarly, the swimming too. Swimming is a completely is unrelated to their level. 
This is something I like about the proficiency system in AD&D as well, too, is that, like, the the combat stuff is the thing that is modeled by your levels uh, directly, which is, like, your Thaco, uh, your hit points, you know, how many attacks you make per round, things like that. So all of those things are a function of your level because, you you know, that's what it's... It's there to help models, to model more difficult adversaries are higher level or have more hit dice or whatever and do more damage so you need more hit points. But some of the things that... would that the things that interact with the parts of the game that are not um, that are not a function of your level or that are not combat at least they don't have anything to do with your level you're climbing you're getting lost your uh, your proficiency checks your swim chance you know um, the interaction with other characters I really really love that none of that stuff is a function of your level the game really seems to you know it definitely shows its war game roots in the sense that it's got a regimented combat system and, you know, there's uh, AC is a strange abstraction to some. But the thing that I definitely prefer to that is that like games like Traveler and like, you know, um, I don't know what other games don't have uh, levels. GURPS to a degree, like you're not waiting for characters to gain levels. You're not, you're not waiting to get good at being, I don't know, a tracker or a doctor or, you know, a whatever you know, until you can gain some levels and have a substantial bonus. And they don't need to find some strange workaround like skill focus or something like that to try and just explain why some characters who are supposed to be experts in some area but not great combatants have those high ratings. You know, which is what they do in um, in uh, D&D 3rd and uh, uh, 3.5 and Pathfinder. So it's just... And I guess, like, the other thing is is that some of the stuff just... It, the D&D rules, while they are, in some cases, you know, they're pretty arcane, and sometimes they, they require you to consult a table to get all your modifiers and stuff. You do that in combat in most modern games anyway, so I'm, I'm not really... That's not a deal-breaker for me. And there's a, it feels like there's a great deal of common sense that has gone into those areas. So for all the criticism that AD&D gets for, you know... Uh, that you can't kill a high-level character with a dagger, full stop. It's just, it, it, you know, that breaks immersion and whatnot and how hit points make don't make sense and they can break your immersion sometimes. There's a lot of things in AD&D that I feel are do a really good job and a better job of modeling reality or quote-unquote reality uh, than, say, modern games do, particularly skill-based games. Uh, yeah, man, skill-based games. I am... I, I, I really don't like... A lot of elements of skill-based games. A lot of things. How it's uh, it's reducing the you know the res- how things are going to go to a skill roll. Playing without those again now with AD and D. Like I had a, a character ask me if he could uh, in a in a AD and D session last week whether you know oh can I trust this guy? And uh, he's like, is something I can roll to see if I can trust this guy? I'm like, no, you got to go on what you know what you found out here. And it was great. I mean, like that was the player was like, oh, okay, well then. I think I trust this guy, but I don't know, you know, and, um, that was really cool. I mean, it was really great to not have it reduced down to a, a dice roll or, and even if I like, if I hide the dice roll, so they don't know whether they succeed or not, it still ends up being this, you know, there's this assumption that the, I don't know. Um, I think I've got a thought about how skill characters or players' expectations um, with respect to the rules can run in the way of games or run in the way of the fiction. 
So maybe what I'll do is, uh, so those are the two games uh, that I've run so far. I'm going to put a pin in this right now. I'm going to come back and talk about how players' expectations of mechanics can interfere with, cannot support, but interfere with the fiction. So let me get back to that. So this is my second effort at recording this section now because I kind of got lost, um, kind of a rudderless uh, discussion of this. But what I want to talk about is is how the difference of play experience that I'm seeing between numbers where you're rolling up, like adding a dice roll against the number the players don't know, and when the players know the number they're rolling against and trying to roll under. Because that's the way I run those two different kind of types. If I, if a player is making a percentile roll, like in a in a percentile game like Call of Cthulhu or Delta Green or Zweihander or Warhammer, where they want to roll a certain number or less. Or a proficiency check in uh, D&D, where they're rolling, or AD&D, where they're rolling their stat or less. Uh, That seems to intrude less. There's less, like, I don't know, there's less continued discussion of the rules after the fact and less griping about failing than there is when a player makes a roll against a specific target number. Um... And they either fail or succeed on it. Uh, and so with with numbers, with games like Pathfinder or Pathfinder 2, uh, where uh, or Starfinder, where the players are making a roll and I'm not telling them what the target number is, like because I'm not telling them the AC or whatever, then the I see a lot more like after the fact, after the dice have been rolled, after the calculation has been rolled and the result has been given, less like, oh, I also have plus one from this. I also have plus two from that. You know, there's less of this after the fact. Um, I don't know. It's not haggling, but it sort of is like that. Uh, and I just, you know, I, I find when the dice roll is done and we've got the result and we leave it behind and continue on and we're not still haggling, I find that so much more preferable to the fiddly bits with um, the more complex game. And you know, I mean, part, and it's not a fault on the, on the fault of the guys. Uh, the more complex a game gets, the more people tend to forget about the rules. So, you know, having had such a positive experience with AD and D recently, and with uh, the you know years worth of. Uh, positive experience with Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, I just, I, I'm back to, again, of like, why do I need these extra rules? I get why Pathfinder 2 is such a fun game and why it makes for a, a really, really fun, satisfying tactical experience, but, like, a lot of the stuff in between, man, like, having a rule for, for everything is such a pain in the ass sometimes and just doesn't really make for, I don't know, like, we, the exploration mode, we, we delved into that a little bit and if you're not familiar with Pathfinder 2, the exploration mode is kind of like the middle ground between downtime and between combat or encounters. And it's a really interesting... <laughs> excuse me. It's an interesting sub-mechanic, but because it's sort of loosey-goosey in terms of how much time is, is taken up in it and how you structure the mini-games, it really does require you to, to, to give the decisions that are made in, those, in that mode any kind of meaningful consequence you kind of have to make a mini game of it and I'm looking forward to uh, the time of recording I'm waiting for the game mastery guide to come out which should have a bunch of it'll probably you know uh, kind of uh, not kickstart but uh, 
it'll you know re- reignite my interest in that uh, sub mechanic because I, I think that the game is is really terrific uh, for the like the fundamental core mechanic is really good, and I'm looking forward to how that's going to be implemented in uh, in play. But uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, the th- one of the things that's a, a bit weird about Pathfinder. Uh, third, second is the. It has done a, done a good job of stepping away from the, the strict simulationist experience that you get with Pathfinder One and more towards a gamist perspective, which I like a, an awful lot. Um, but I don't know why they didn't go one step further and introduce, um, like the equivalent of legendary actions. I, I Maybe this is going to show up in the Game Mastery Guide, but in 5th edition, having the legendary actions, which used to be boss actions effectively in uh, in 4th edition, or like the uh, they could spend action points to take extra actions. Um, what legendary actions are, for those who are unfamiliar, uh, is it gives the monsters, big scary boss monsters, an opportunity to break the rules and, and act more often, you know, break the action economy rules and uh, act more often than what uh, a typical individual creature could do. And it just seems like low-hanging fruit to give boss monsters more reactions in Pathfinder 2. And uh, I, I'm going to start making use of those because I, I love them a lot, and it gives boss monsters a much more... Uh, it got a different feel when you're fighting, a, a scaling a fight like that. Um, the, But I guess, like just getting back to the... I'm getting lost in my complaints about having too many rules here, but I just, you know, recent experience with um, the October Faction session, the getting ready for this uh, cult uh, Dracula dossier mashup that I've got coming this weekend, and thinking about uh, City Mist again, and the experience we've had with AD&D so far, I just feel like, boy, there is a great deal more rules in um, Pathfinder 2 that I just don't know are, are necessary. And uh, I, at least, I don't think they're necessary for the kind of play experience that I like the best. You know, um, which I guess means that Pathfinder 2 is not one of my favorite games, uh, you know, so that's that's easy to understand. But I mean, what I mean is that the, by giving ascending skill bonuses to everything you know, um, it just feels it, it, it feels very weird, like to to have to key. It, you're linking everything to to the level, whereas what AD and D does, what um, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerer's Hyperborea does, what all the old school games do, is they decouple the skills uh, and whatnot. They de- decouple that stuff, the non-combat stuff, from the combat stuff. The combat stuff is what is a function of your level. And everything else is not paired with that. And when you've got games like... I mean, even 5th Edition does this to a degree. But I guess I have a newfound respect for 5th Edition in the sense that... you, Because you've decoupled it from that... Um, your proficiency bonus is only going up a small incremental amount. Your stats are really only going up a small incremental amount. Uh, if you are spending them on stat bonuses rather than feats. And... Um, yeah, I mean, I just I think that by having that old school way of having different 
sets of rules for different things. And it's funny because I, I mentioned this last week as well about uh, older Shadowrun, where older Shadowrun had different rules for different things, and that gave each of them a different experience, and it felt different when you were hacking from when you were casting spells, from when you were summoning elementals, from when you were rigging, you know, and by streamlining those things, you sort of lose that granularity uh, of that you, that comes from each of those different subsystems, and yeah, it does require you to learn a lot more subsystems, but it makes each of them feel distinctly unique, and I just, you know, like, by having ascending skill bonuses by having the in the way they do it in Pathfinder 2 and in Starfinder where difficulties are often paired against your level so like if you're trying to use a certain skill a non-combat skill against an, an opponent or an adversary that is your level or above your level it'll it'll scale in relation to that so a, a, an adversary that is a higher level than you will have a higher level difficulty but it's going to be in relation to where your character is. And that's just, just weird. Like, why does he, Why do you need that? If you're having all of the things, if all the things you're going to be encountering in the, in the world are all going to be relatively either, you know, in, if they're going to be in relation to your character where it's harder, you know, average, easier. Well then why do you need to keep a set, you know, scaling those numbers up? Why don't they just remain the same? Do you need to have those go up? You know, um, because if you're not ever encountering shit that's way lower level than you, um, why do you need those things? Why do you need those those skills in it? Why do you need those bonuses? Why not just keep it all the same, the way that AD&D does? And I guess like part of it is, well, then I get to make more fiddly decisions about how I'm building my character, but I just don't know why you, you know, why do you need... Um, if you, what you want is for someone to be objectively better at, say, charming someone or intimidating someone or whatnot, do you need to continually measure that relative level between first and twentieth level? And I guess like the answer that that games like D and D third through till you know I guess modern D and D, yes, you do need that. But do you need the dramatic changes so that like a halfway competent 8th level character will always absolutely, you know, shitting their pants terrify 1st level characters. Because the game, and this is in Pathfinder 2, I'm thinking the game tells you, yes, that is the right way to, to model that. Um, I don't know if I like that sensibility. Like, you know, I, I I just don't know why I need you know, I don't know why I need scaling game mechanics in order to, to do that stuff because you're not really if you're leaving it to the the dice roll and the modifiers you're not leaving it to role playing and I know this is just an old you know uh, this is a I'm beating a dead horse here by complaining about meh, 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 certain by attributing things to skills then what you're doing is you're taking away from the um, the role playing component of the game but you know and, I, and I, I recognize that it is a different style of experience. You are, the dice are, results are telling you how things are modeled in the fiction as opposed to, you know, the DM, I guess, adjudicating things or relying on a charisma modifier to set the reaction and then seeing how role-playing takes things. But it just feels very, you know, like there's a... It feels very boring, honestly. And the reason I think it is is because the more things... 
when we play old school games, we have to fill in a lot of the fluff. You know, we just like for me when I'm running an old school game, I do a lot of description of spells, of attacks, of injuries, and things like that in combat. And the reason we have to do that is because the mechanics do not do the heavy lifting there. They only tell us sort of the binary pass fail, and sometimes a crit if you're using those rules. I don't use crits in AD and D, um, but when you extrapolate that to the other areas of the game, the exploration, the role-playing, and whatnot, and you re- reduce those to those dice rolls too, well, then you're doing... I guess, so my, my meaningful... The fluff that I add to the to the combat in old-school games, sometimes it adds mechanical benefits, like we'll, we'll play on what goes before, but more often than not, it doesn't. It's just a way of sort of like filling in the fun story stuff that goes on. It doesn't really have any mechanical consequence on what the attack rolls are. You know, so... Because um, there's no death spiral, there's no modif- you know, there's no penalties that come from being wounded in AD and D. So we're we're not the, the fluff is there to fill in the the, the fiction and, and describe what's going on, but it doesn't have it doesn't necessarily sync up with what's going on in the fiction. The more things that you end up attributing to just those those same dice results, where you have to sort of fill in the narration afterwards, the less there is where you're actually. Immersing, immersing, you know, Im, um, Im, immersing yourself in the experience of the fiction. You know, like when I'm running an old school game, I'll roll the you know reaction modifiers and things like that to set where things are, and then role play forward based on how the players are acting and, and whatnot. And that is, I, I think, that makes for a much more immersive experience. You're not thinking about your modifiers, your bonuses, or whatnot. I mentioned the the player making the judgment call based on um, you know whether that he could trust this NPC in the group and I mean the NPC was keeping secrets from him and they had reasons to not trust them but I mean it was so much more interesting to see him make that judgment call based on him as the player and the experience he had with that NPC as opposed to making a sense motive or an insight check and then making using that to judge whether or not and I know my character is really good he's got a really good modifier for that Eh, I just, um, yeah, I, I, I guess, you know, the reason that's, from my perspective, more immersive is because we're not doing the fictional filling in. We're not filling in the narration. We're not doing the role playing. We're not providing that description and, and like diving into the, the, the narrative component of the gameplay experience. We're not diving into that because it's just fluff that's being added on to an otherwise arbitrary mechanical modifier. We are, you know, we, that's what the game is. That is the game. And I, I guess getting to the, the, the reason I've got a problem with the players challenging and haggling over those modifiers is because it is questioning whether the narrative outcome is the correct interpretation of what the dice are telling us. And that's in a story game where there is a collaborative kind of experience that's going on. Maybe that's 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 fine where you can have a disagreement as to whether the interpretation is the correct one, but the, the constant, and it's not constant, but the it feels a lot more constant than in an in an AD and D thing where, or and I'm I'm using AD and D as the example for this just because I'm doing it more often. But 
there is less of that haggling about whether the dice result accurately reflects what's happening or the fiction accurately reflects what the dice results are. And I don't see that in those other ones, partly because we don't challenge the dice, partly because I hide always the encounter reactions and just give through description what's go, what sort of the starting you know, reaction is. But when we are seeding more and more to the dice results as opposed to having the dice supplement and help us uh, understand what's going on in the fiction, the more of that space that we that we secede to or we cede to the to the dice, I find like the less interesting that is then. The more we're just making decisions about the input side before the dice is result you know is rolled as opposed to interpreting what's and just immersing interpreting what's going on and, and immersing ourselves in the fiction. And that's what you know what I, I guess what I was I came away from from the Pathfinder second edition session is like I did love it. I, I had a really good time with it. It was a fun encounter. I was just thinking because I was prepping for AD&D I'm like would this have been better with AD&D? It would have been faster in a lot of ways. You know, because um, the combat would have gone by a lot faster. That means that we're not going to be able to engage in a lot of the fun powers and shit like that that we do in AD&D in, um, in Pathfinder 2. But, I mean, like, we do still have lots of... The way I run AD&D, at least, there is a fair amount of crunch in it as well. You know, so we would have the opportunity to engage in that stuff. And what are we losing? We're losing a lot of those dice rolls, you know? Like... When you're immersed in a role-playing opportunity, is it more fun to make the dice roll in order to get a result, to get some information, you know, uh, to get the player or the NPC to, uh, to you know, to give up some of its information, to, to be friendly with the players, to be intimidated with the players, you know, um, we had recently, like, intimidation is one of those skills that I fucking hate in uh, modern games, because players, ex- you know, and reasonably, because that's the way the rules are written, but they expect that it should do certain things, you know, like, I rolled really awesome, you should apply the rules for making them run away, you know, and I just, I, I just hate that so much more than I hate the morale rules, like, I love morale rules in old school games, where players will do things, and I, I, in our recent, um, our most recent Ash session, we had an amazing thing where the player had done something really hurt, terrifying. You know, one player had, was subject to an enlarged spell. He picked up the corpse of one of the leaders of the enemy group and then threw it into a unit of uh, soldiers, and those soldiers freaked out and ran away because they failed a, a morale check, and they made a morale check that was um, with some substantial penalties, and. That was so much more interesting than in the player throwing it and making a uh, an intimidate roll. And I don't know why. Why is that? I don't know. Am I a control freak? Because I want to have the morale check. Because I didn't fudge the morale the rolls, but I just find that that is a more satisfying thing than where I can reward the player's actions and hide the mechanics behind the scenes with a. Uh, behind the screen morale roll knowing that I won't fudge the roll or is it I guess because the thing is you know what maybe this is part of the reason if I had made the morale check 
it's the NPCs being... Boy, it's not that the player wasn't scary enough. It's that, holy shit, these NPCs are scarier. They're, they're real tough, hardened veterans. Whereas if the player had failed the intimidate check and then they didn't run away, it would be that, no, you weren't as scary as you think. And that is effectively the same net result, but it is more badass... It doesn't take anything away from the player's badassitude by making the morale check, by having the NPCs make their morale check, whereas if they fail their intimidate check, it means your badass thing that you did was stupid in some way and not as scary. I knew there'd be some reason I, I didn't like this beyond just control freak tendencies. I think that's it. I think it is because the implication is, is that it's not the player's failing and having a chump, having, feeling like chumps. It is the fact that the players still get to feel like badasses. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, see, in the same way that I don't like the, you know, um, the diplomacy checks as well, too. Like, just role play. Role play your characters. Have fun. I don't care if you're a good role player or a bad role player. Just, just play and, and we'll, we'll, you know, I, I will respond appropriately. We're not going to cede it to the to the dice you know, gods and, and, uh, just, yeah. And, you know, it, it makes me think of the, 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 the ethos behind the gumshoe system that I talked about last week as well, too, where, you know, succeeding in the clue, that's not the interesting thing, you know, in finding the clue. The interesting thing is getting the clue and figuring out what it means for the bigger picture in the story. And same thing with, with NPCs. If NPCs are, serving a purpose, the, you know, wh- whether it's they're going to prompt more information about something or they're going to provide a way of the players accessing resources or whatnot too, why gate that behind a dice roll? Like, why does that shit need to be behind a dice roll? They either can or they cannot get access to stuff that way, in which case you have a whole section of these more modern games where you're not engaging those things in a meaningful way. No, you need to make a diplomacy check in order to succeed. Well, what happens if you fail? What happens if you fail at that? You, you know, and does that mean you don't get an access to that information? That's boring. That's as bad as what the, you know, the failed research skill uh, check in uh, Call of Cthulhu. Um, whereas in the old school games, there isn't any like though they can learn by going and talking to those NPCs. And I guess. What that means is that my style of play, the way I would prefer to run games, either minimizes those things, those those um, non-combat dice rolls, or I have to figure out some way of making it so that there are interesting results beyond just getting the baseline from those results. Um, I still don't like rolling them. Like I just, I, I so man, having returned now to Pathfinder Two after running. Uh, AD&D for about 16 sessions. I do not like how a lot of how much the game forces you to to do so much of the play experience through a game lens. I just want to be able to wave my hands at a bunch of things and by doing that you're invalidating whole chunks of the game. So I guess what I need to do is give some thought to ways I can make that more interesting and more engaging uh, so that those non-combat things that my players have invested in, they are not useless and that it doesn't force them to make all their 
decisions and selections for their character, their, the things that are, are fun about those games, to make them all in a combat vein because the non-combat ones won't matter. Huh. So that's some work I need to do between now and the next session. I did enjoy my Pathfinder 2 session, but I definitely did not like having to engage in those... Uh, in the non-combat stuff, you know? Um, there were some... Like, that's not to say that it was all suboptimal. I did like the... When the players had to spend time to seek and try to spot these um, this enemy, they're they're fighting they're, when they're fighting the shark. Shark kept going under the water, and they're having to spend actions to look and try and find it. But I guess you know I, I'd have to ask my players. I don't know whether that was fun of like okay, cool, I need to try and spot this thing, or whether it just felt like a action tax. Because that could have been how some of them felt of like fuck, I got I got to waste one action spotting the shark that someone else found for me. Like is that fun? Or is that just a bit of a waste of time? Does that just feel like you're chewing up resources? I don't know. Um, I guess I'd have to put it to the players to make that decision. And what I had done, basically, it's for, I guess I'm, I'm talking around this thing. In um, in that encounter with the shark, the undead shark, what the players were having to do is make use of this neat mechanic that Pathfinder 2 has where you expressly spend one of your three actions looking for further information. It's called seeking. And I, I, for this one, I was making them make a perception roll. And if they succeeded, they would spot where the shark is under the water. And then they would be able to, once you seek something, you can spend, uh, you can point it out to other allies and, and they don't need to make rolls for it, which is pretty cool. Um, but it means that the other players have to sink one action into doing that. And when the players are having to keep an eye out for the sharks, and then also spend two actions to ready one more action to interrupt the shark's action when it gets into range. And that means that you can't really do anything else. So I guess that was pretty interesting. You know, maybe I... Yeah, because I mean, that they may had to make the decision of doing something else in the boat or being aware of where the shark was. But I wasn't clear, I don't think, in that particular encounter what the consequences were of not seeing the shark because you can still ready an action. Hmm. So... What is it that I can draw from this? Um, what is it that uh, it's about those dice rolls that I really don't like? Well, for one, I don't like how you get the same result where, especially with intimidate checks, where players might run or players might hide or, or hide, you know, checks where players might, um, the NPCs might be hiding from them. They might be, players might be doing a bad job of spotting things. But by taking the roll out of the player's hands, uh, and, and doing a hidden roll, which Pathfinder 2 allows, it does rob them of some of the... They don't feel like their big bonus is making a difference. And then if I do put it in their hands, then it... <laughs> excuse me. It'll either make the players feel like chumps when the other side is spotted, or... I don't know, or... when they Sorry, when they don't spot the, the adversaries, or it will... I don't know. I mean, it'll make the players be aware that they, well, I didn't roll good enough to actually spot something. And you know, the, the amount of times when, when players make reference to in, in these comments, like, well, I got a zero bonus. I'm not going to bother rolling. It just, it feels like when players, when you do set that, that level-based thing for certain scenes, it just means players disengage from certain sessions, you know? They just, they, they I, I definitely had one or two players who totally tuned out in certain scenes where their characters did not have 
a mechanical bonus or in a mechanical way of meaningfully engaging. And that sucks. You know, it's something I didn't like about the um, the Song of Ice and Fire RPG is what players would actively disengage from certain scenes because they're like, eh, I, I'm not going to have a chance of succeeding anyway. And that, you don't do that when you when you don't have that stuff tracked by level. Um, you know, even if you're just using your flat stats and you're making them make a wisdom or a charisma roll or whatever, when you use that as the basis as opposed to or the way that D&D 5th does it, where an easy task is a DC 10, at least the players who, even if they suck at it, they'll still make a check. They'll still try and participate. So, I mean, yeah. I'm making a longer list of reasons I don't like non-combat skill scaling. And I get that there's the argument, like, look, you know, you get more... And Pathfinder 2, in fairness, does do a good job of scaling the skills of being trained expert master legendary you know so you can scale you know track that directly up with the difficulty of, of certain tasks which are you know trained expert master legendary that's pretty cool so you can get the feeling of like over time my character is becoming more of a master of the arcane arts or of the occult secrets or of history or whatever but i don't know um it do we need to have players scale up in that way can we not have them say like look combat wise I'm not super competent or whatnot, too but I do know I got, I'm a pretty well read and well studied student so I got a pretty great chance of knowing everything I'll know about spell craft or about whatever you know about history or about tracking do we need that to scale do we need them to feel like chumps do we need that zero to hero path for those non-combat skills I don't know does it add significant drama or enough to justify the 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 feeling like a chump at those lower levels or mid-levels? Hmm. As you can tell from my tone, I'm unconvinced. So, I don't know. Um, now, I guess I could recognize that what this whole, you know, 40-minute rant, I guess, could be when you combine the two sections is really just a long way of me saying how much I'm enjoying AD&D with the proficiencies and, uh, you know, and, and I think by extension the way that non-combat skills are, are handled in 5th edition because the 5th edition, you know, with pairing it to just attribute bonus and proficiency bonus, that does, or whatever it is, specialty, I can't remember what they called focus in uh, the, the, the thief thing you get to do where you get to add double your proficiency bonus, I can't remember what that's called, but um, that stuff, if you... Um, it may just be like me saying that this is why those things, or Traveler, or, you know, um, the, my October Faction game, or the percentile-based games, why those are, are more fun. Not Zweihander, because Zweihander is that weird thing where you, you have difficulty becoming an expert in your roles early on. But, like, RuneQuest, you can do that. Call of Cthulhu, you can do that. You can start off being really good at a lot of different skills. I think it makes for a better non-combat experience and it makes your characters feel more complete when you're competent in those other areas and it takes less of the sting away from wanting to go up levels. If in some of these other games where, you know, especially for old school level-based games, if your characters can feel at least halfway decent in the non-combat scenes, in the they can feel they can meaningfully participate in the role-playing scenes. They can do things that will trigger morale checks at all levels. If that isn't gated behind a, a level-based thing to get better bonuses, they are not going to feel as 
pressured to get those levels. It's going to feel like they are more complete as characters already than if you feel like, oh, my bonus is only a plus four. I'm, I suck at most things. God, I can't wait to gain levels. If you can't wait to gain levels and gain higher bonuses in all aspects of the gameplay, that is what forces players to feel like, fuck, I want to get more levels. That's what forces you to, to you know, hurry along in the XP gain and doesn't and it prevents you from or provides at least one disincentive for just sitting back and enjoying the roses, you know, sitting back, smelling the roses and enjoying the journey of going through those levels. Maybe this is why I'm feeling like we're 16 sessions in in our AD&D game and we've only just had players hit second level, but I haven't had anybody bitch about the level experience. Their characters still feel competent in a lot of areas um, and combat scary, yes, but because they're engaging in so many other parts of the game and they're able to do so without feeling like chumps the way you do as low-level characters in Pathfinder and Starfinder, this is a much more, a much better experience and it doesn't, you don't feel the pressure of needing to level up to get those higher modifiers to feel like a complete character. And Pathfinder 2 does get around that. Because they, you know, the trained and whatever else too, they, they do a good job of making you feel less like a chump. You feel like a more holistic character at starting level. So does Starfinder for that matter. But you still, because of the difficulty classes that they set that are un, for non-combat skills that are unrelated to levels, they do still encourage that, God, I can't wait to get more levels and get more skill bonuses so that I'm not feeling like a, a chump or a, a, a you know... Like I'm failing more often than I'm succeeding just because I'm low level. Huh. That is another reason for why I've been thinking in the last little while as to whether, you know, because um, I got a lot of different uh, settings and, and adventures that I would really love to explore with AD&D, but I was in, in, in a more story-based manner, the way I would run, you know, uh, Pathfinder or whatnot, but I think that um, I was I was concerned about like well these characters are going to feel like chumps you know because they're first level A D and D character just looking at it from combat stats boy that's going to kind of suck but the other stuff you get from that from the proficiency system from the uh, the kit the neat abilities you get from your kit from the way you can just role play without having to have great diplomacy stats or whatever. Um, the way you can roleplay, you know, clever players can roleplay around characters having shitty charisma or whatever. All of that stuff, that's what is hidden in those games. You know, because they don't force the game rules onto it, it's deceptive uh, how important that the, cons- the impact of that stuff has, of those design decisions have on the other elements of the game. You know, um, it is a mistake to think that just because the more modern games expressly make game mechanics for exploration, for role-playing, to think that that stuff has not been adequately considered in these old-school games, um, yeah, it's a mistake. I think that uh, the... I guess the the wisdom in not making game mechanics for it, or at least not keying those game mechanics to level, that is a huge, uh, has a huge impact on the satisfaction at the table. This might be why I, you know, I have a totally different experience running these level-based games 
and how I feel like I would be the experience I would get running a level based game like Revised Stars Without Number which doesn't have ascending difficulty classes based on level it's just a flat thing why these games feel much more satisfying to me than going, you know, than this recent experience going back where suddenly everything is level based and everything's a relation to your level. Interesting stuff. Hmm. I'm going to end this section here. Um, because I would be interested in hearing what you folks think about this. Um, whether I'm, I'm out to lunch in thinking that by linking only combat to the level-based stuff and spells obviously as well too but I mean by linking the primarily combat is why you've got Thaco going getting better why you've got spells doing more damage you've got more attacks per round that's if it's a function of your level whereas the proficiencies and whatever else for the most part are not you know and the difficulty of, of certain tasks like interacting with other NPCs or um, climbing walls or swimming or whatnot that shit is is independent of the level and the level is really just a function of how awesome you are at beating the shit out of things or manipulating things with spells or whatever um, that makes for for a much I don't know a much a much better experience you know it's, it's which is funny because you think that the, a lot of these more modern design decisions try and make you know, more hit points at low levels, more opportunities to heal at low levels, more opportunities to do spells and cantrips that do damage and shit like that at lower levels, so that those, to try and make, from that perspective, the lower level play more uh, rewarding. But the thing is, is that's, all that's doing is making combat more gamified as opposed to you know, as opposed to recognizing that, you know what, by, by, we don't need to add more of these extra options for for gamifying non-combat and exploration mode stuff at these low levels. All we need to do is recognize that that's a, a key part of the game that does not need to be a function of your level. If you don't like the way how squishy characters are in these old school games, just start them at higher level. You know? Uh, yeah. And I don't want to make it sound like I'm saying like you can only play old school games and that's it. I just, you know, if if you feel the panic to bring characters up in levels that I, or if you share my feelings of, of not panic, but like the anxiety of like, fuck, I want to get these characters XP so they can go up in levels, you know, uh, that I've talked about many times in this podcast. Um, I wonder if part of the reason why I'm not feeling that with these old school games is because... I don't need to get them up to a certain level to have two different tiers of play be rewarding, you know, and and to not feel suboptimal because they need to get more levels in order to hit a, a sweet spot with the, the math on it. Um, these old school games don't require me to do that, whereas the new school games do. By gamifying everything, there's other consequences to it too, but also it means that I feel the, the, the pressure either get them up to a certain level or sometimes I feel that they've leveled out of the, the sweet spot where I am comfortable with it where they get to the point where these these bonuses to the different modifiers are so meaningless that you know everyone is rolling between 26 and 36 as their dice result and I have to try and figure out you know whether which, which is good and which is bad um, yeah when I've got players who are saying like eh, I don't really doesn't feel intuitive to me which of those feels really great 
you know, at the level we're at. So anyway, I'm going to, that's 40 minutes. This section is already, my goodness. I'm going to end uh, uh, this one here and uh, I'm going to listen back to the section and see if there is anything cogent that is worth drawing from it. So I can try and sum up this and then my experience with the, um, and uh, relate that back to the experience with the actual, uh, the um, state of play section from, uh, from earlier. So, so I'm going to end this section here. Okay, this is my second effort at uh, recording this section now too. So I, I gave the previous sections a listen before and then, uh, and I recognize that that uh, third segment is awfully rambly, but I think I reach at least some conclusions that will be helpful, uh, if not for the listeners, uh, hopefully for the listeners, but if not, at least I, I've got a much better idea of why I am favoring the level-based games uh, over, or the certain level-based games over other ones, ones that uh, uh, do not, the things that have a unified mechanic, um, those are the ones that I'm really not, uh, I'm not enjoying as much, the ones with the more, uh, more subsystems and more kind of different ways of approaching uh, different aspects of the game, I am preferring that. And I guess, you know, what it is, is when you, I, I had one my first effort at recording this, I went into a whole diatribe about how difficulty classes are just basically the defenses on your skill attack. And it's, it's I mean, I guess that's, that's technically true. The, you know, difficulty class was chosen as a nomenclature because uh, the armor class, armor class was already part of the game and had been part of the game from the beginning, so difficulty class was an easy um, extension. You're making effectively an attack roll, which is the same as your uh, your attack roll. And what all of that does, the net result of, of having DCs and whatnot, is that it does make for a more streamlined play. Um, where you only need to no, roll a d20, add a number to it, that's how you, you know, how you succeed. And I am feeling that, that, that the, you know, the drive to, uh, towards simplicity, uh, that there was a loss of granularity and a loss of the flavor that each of those sub-mechanics engendered. Uh, and I said engendered an awful lot this session, but what, what or the session this episode, what, the, the, the mood that I guess that it sets in each of those, um, those areas, those um, different mini-games. And, you know, it's, it's not a surprise that Money Cook was a big part of that redesign and that... Because, I mean, it's one of the things, my criticisms of Cypher... Uh, which is Monty Cook's game is just it's, which really just makes use of d twenties and d sixes, and I think that's at a percentile dice at times, but um, it's just uh, look, it is. Um, I have not had a lot of fun uh, with that system. I, I don't. I don't find it to be terribly interesting. It's very very fiddly, uh, and the it's bland. I find it very very bland, mechanically speaking. Um, and that's sort of like an ultimate uh, expression of a D20 style thing where, you're all, you know, everything is, is uh, rooted in 1D20 plus uh, modifiers. And that's, I mean, I, 
you know, I don't want to make it sound as if I don't like the 20 uh, games. I, I'm still really looking forward to revisiting Pathfinder 1 at some point this year. I'm, especially with that low-level play that I had in mind. Um, I love uh, Pathfinder 2. Uh, it's, it's certainly not my, especially in comparison to uh, my experience with AD&D recently, it's not my uh, favorite game any longer. Uh, well, I mean, never was. Ash was always, uh, has been sort of holding that top spot for the last little while. Um, but there's definitely elements of old school play, um, in particular the way that AD&D uh, handles it, but I think it's very similar across most um, old school games too, that I'm just, I'm definitely preferring the uh, the more either light touch or different mini game. Uh, or different sub-rules, I guess, aspect of it. Like, the the way that AD&D decouples certain things like swimming and climbing and whatnot, it just, it is so much more immersive and so much more, I don't know, uh, it, it feels like a better fit and more immersive uh, at the table than, say, you know, trying to force all of those actions through the lens of a skill challenge. This is kind of the problem that we had with uh, fourth edition as well, too, is that like there were certain things that you would think would be dice-related actions because there was you know there was drama in the question of whether they succeed or not. Um, but it was a, because of the way the spill, skill you know skills were set out in that game, it was very difficult to figure out how to gamify that. You know, so um, crafting in particular, oof, boy, <laughs> good luck. I guess you're doing athletics in D and D fourth. Um, but I mean, I guess you know that if you make the decision to add more stuff in, that's where you you lose that simplicity, and you get more get into the more granular thing. So I guess at the end of the day, what it means uh, is that there is a certain level of complexity that I I personally subjectively prefer in uh, my in my games, and there are some things where I I do not want that. Um, I yeah. I, I think that um, what I'm going to, what I might do is try and find more ways of. See, this is the tr- the, the problem with. Um, I was going to say that I was going to f- try and find more ways to kind of decouple some of the uh, elements of my Pathfinder game from the game mechanics. But that kind of the problem with that is just like it is in Pathfinder One, where as soon as you start ignoring certain rules, it definitely it has the potential for invalidating certain character choices. Because again, like the way your character build your character uh, creation is designed it is designed in a certain way to interface with the way that you have built uh the way that you're going to run the game uh so it's not an insurmountable problem necessarily but um yeah i mean and i've already to be honest i've already household some stuff in pathfinder 2 anyway so uh but yeah Anyway, I, I think what I'll do is I'm going to end this episode here. I, I clearly want to think about it. I want to talk to some uh, folks on see or see what uh, some of the listeners, some of you fine folks, have to think about this stuff. Um, uh, and I mean, I'm hoping that at the end of the day, this isn't just you know an hour and whatever episode of me grou- grossing about mo- the way modern games link uh, certain things to uh, levels because um, listening back I mean there's definitely a lot of <laughs> a lot of that in here but uh, I yeah I'm hoping that this will give you some food for thought for how those um, you know what, what the, I guess the, the consequence of having those things in and I guess 
you know, as a final kind of devil's advocate thing here, you know, one of the reasons why that is beneficial to have that stuff codified is for bad DMs, I guess. You know, if you've got a, uh, a DM who is, or maybe like a not, um, a, a DM who is not generous with the their successes, you know, so like if the players, you know, what, what I've had to explain is that one of the reasons why uh, D&D third forward was such a welcome uh, change for a lot of players is because of bad experiences with DMs um, running either inconsistent or, you know, unfair uh, interpretations of the, uh, what do you call it, of their, uh, the AD&D rules. And, um, yeah, and I mean, I guess the, uh, the, the, what, what the, these modern games do is if you do have specific rules for intimidating, you don't need to leave it to DM judgment. For me, like, I'm fine leaving shit to DM judgment, either making it the judgment call of my own, uh, or for, you know, let, letting the, whatever person's running a game for me, let them make the judgment call as to what, um, you know, what, what the difficulty or what the chances of success are that I'm going to have with certain things. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, not everyone wants that. And also, I mean, not every DM wants to be making all those judgment calls. They want to have a clear number they can put to their players. There's some players who want to have that stuff. So I get why, you know, I get why the systems are the way they are. And I, I get the, um, the role that that plays. I just, uh, for me personally, like I think for all the reasons that I talked about in this uh, episode, I, I definitely prefer that uh, older school uh, approach to it, which is to say that either using you know, it, I mean, I think it all really comes down to the idea of decoupling um, non-combat components from that the level-based um, bonuses or level-based competency, I guess. So, anyway, that is the gut episode. Let's get to the outro. Okay, so that's it for that episode. Uh, so, um, as always, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding the subject matter of this, um, I would be keen to hear from you, please feel free to shoot me a voice message on Anchor. Uh, you can shoot me an email. My email address is dungeonmusings at gmail.com. You can shoot me a, a message on Twitter. My Twitter handle is dungeonmusings. And uh, if you go to the uh, Dungeon Musings YouTube channel, uh, you can find on any of our recent videos a link to the Dungeon Musings Discord server where you can join us and uh, you can... Uh, yeah, and I've got channels dedicated to this... Um, podcast to all the games that I run on the channel as well as a bunch of other games, uh, a bunch of other channels including assorted um, uh, assorted games, finding a game, dogs pets, things like that So, uh, anyway, uh, thank you so much for listening until I speak to you again happy gaming